I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. The great cliffhanger in Pennsylvania remains, well, just that this evening. Suspenseful. In fact, more than 24 hours after polls close in a primary race that's key to which party holds control of the Senate next year, the biggest primary night of the year has now stretched into night two, with the two GOP Senate candidates in Pennsylvania deadlocked in a too-close-to-call contest. This week has come down to candidates Dave McCormick and Trump-endorsed Mehmet Oz. Thousands of mail-in ballots are still being counted, and even after they are counted, this dead heat race is like you're heading to an automatic recount under Pennsylvania law because of the slim margin. So both Oz and McCormick have already acknowledged that this still isn't over. In fact, there's a process. We have tens of thousands of of mail-in ballots that have not been counted. We're not going to have a result tonight. When all the votes are tallied, I am confident we will win. The process remains. But here comes Donald Trump today on his social media site, ripping a page right out of his own playbook that his endorsed candidate, Oz, just go ahead and declare victory. Why? He says so it's, quote, harder for them to cheat, unquote. More baseless conspiracies based on this notion of mailed-in ballots. So all eyes remain on this key battleground state tonight that Trump legitimately lost in 2020. The ex-president can, however, celebrate the resounding victory of one of the most active promoters of his big lie, who he threw his support behind, well, very late in the game, but still did nonetheless. Extreme far-right candidate Doug Mastriano. He soundly won the GOP nomination for Pennsylvania governor yesterday. It's a huge win for him, undoubtedly, but for his party, perhaps that's more questionable. See, a lot of mainstream Republicans in Pennsylvania and, frankly, elsewhere aren't too happy that Mastriano's the one on the ballot going into the general election against the current PA Attorney General Josh Shapiro. Mastriano attended Trump's January 6th Stop the Steel rally. He was even seen walking past breached barricades at the Capitol that day. And he ran on the big lie and has, well, many other radical views. So many Republicans fear that he might be easy for Shapiro to knock out in November. And interestingly enough, Shapiro thinks so too. He was actually apparently hoping that Mastriano would be the one to run against him. And remember, whoever the governor will be will appoint a secretary of state in Pennsylvania who will actually oversee elections, including the one in 2024. With Mastriano trying to get a free and fair election overthrown from back in 2020, well, that could worry a lot of voters in November. Meanwhile, there's the blowout victory in the Democratic primary for Senate last night, with Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman winning that nomination from his hospital bed. Recall that he had a stroke and a defibrillator implanted to regulate his heart rhythm. But the medical emergency did not stop him from advancing to the general election in November, where he's going to face off with, well, either Mehmet Oz or Dave McCormick. Well, that's the big question. Which one will it be? Which Republican will go against Fetterman? And... Could Fetterman's health issues become a bigger issue for him in the general election? And what did his win and other race outcomes say about the strength, maybe, of progressivism in America? I want to bring in Nina Turner, former Ohio state senator and former co-chair of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. She recently lost her own bid for Congress. And also Scott Jennings, former advisor, Senator Minority Leader um, Mitch McConnell. Welcome to you both. I'm glad to have you here. Let me begin with you, Scott, because... You know, when people are thinking about this primary and this notion of 
Trump saying, just go ahead and declare the victory because you don't want those pesky, well, mailed in ballots to get in your way of being able to say you won. You know, you have some memory flashbacks of what happened in places like Pennsylvania, for example, in 2020, or like in Georgia and the continuation of the big lie. When you hear Trump saying that, what comes to mind for you? What is your reaction? Well, it worked out great for him, right? I mean, it's not like the country was plunged into a massive crisis that we're still dealing with today. I mean, I mean, it's a ridiculous not assertion. By the way, <laughs> he's, recomm- he's, rec- he's recommending that we disenfranchise a bunch of Republicans, people in his own party. So, no, this is not the right advice. The process ought to get a chance to play out. And by the way, I don't know really who has the advantage here. It's a very close race. And I think Republicans are going to be well served with either McCormick or Oz, who are likely going to run the same campaign in the fall, which is that Joe Biden's terrible and we need to push back on him by electing a Republican. So in some ways, I'm not sure it quite matters. It matters to Trump, of course, because he cares most about his one loss record. But the idea that we would disenfranchise Republican voters who fairly cast ballots to me uh, seems kind of crazy. But then again, he's uh, in this particular space. He's never been known for uh, he's been never been known for reasonableness. I got to tell you also in the in this country right now, the idea, Nina, of disenfranchising voters who otherwise ought to be able to have their votes counted albeit crazy, increasingly more common in this country. What's your reaction to the idea of having mailed in ballots, even though it would impact Republicans, but it's a voter in general, this notion of, as Scott said, that they'd be better served with either Oz or, of course, McCormick. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's definitely lunacy. All votes should count. And that's what this representative democracy is about. You know, most people are never, ever going to run for office. But the one way that their voices can be and should be heard is the notion of one person, one vote. So that is vitally important. And the fact that President Trump and other Republicans, unfortunately, peddle this nonsense about a voter fraud. Uh, we know that there have been studies out there to show very clearly that people are more likely, have a greater likelihood of being struck by lightning than to have voter fraud. It absolutely makes no sense. So in that, you know, Scott and I, we might not agree on a lot, but disenfranchising people is wrong no matter who they want to vote for. I love that we start with an agreement. And now let's get to where we probably are going to disagree in this particular instance. But glad we had that nice foundation. Bravo to both of you on that. <laughs> now let's talk about the idea of what's happening in terms of what the race would ultimately be. Again, say Fetterman, of course, in this race, and then either the winners of the Republican primary. And I wonder if, from your perspective, um, Nina in particular, you know, you've got Fetterman, who has said he's a Democrat. And I would note back in April, he told our colleagues that he does not categorize himself as a progressive. He considers himself a Democrat that's running on the same platform of ideas that every other Democrat in this race is running on and said, and I can't think of a Democrat running nationally that's running on anything functionally different in that regard. When you hear that idea, I mean, he's often referred to and thought of as a progressive. Does his victory, and it was a decisive one at that at this point, Does that bode well for progressive policies and platforms, or is he trying to distance himself because he needs to be more appealing in a general election where there might not be the appetite for it? I mean, appealing to changing people's material conditions, that's the key. So, you know, it was Shakespeare who once said, what's in a name? A rose by any other name smells just as sweet. 
if in fact the lieutenant governor is running to help to change material conditions of the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class in this country, he may not necessarily want to call himself a progressive, but standing up for those issues are vitally important to all voters, to all people, especially if you are among the people who are poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class. That is to change their lives materially. That is health care. That is making sure that people can unionize. That is making sure that folks have a living wage. Those things permeate, Laura, as we know, across party lines. So it is vitally important that he pushes that. We know that he's also been running on making it very clear that he is not, you know, Joe Manchin, for example. He's not Christian cinema. And that's a great start right there coming out the gate. Well, Scott, on that notion of thinking about one saying tomato, one saying tomato, and the idea of thinking about what it really means, does it resonate with the Republican Party for those who are going to be coming up on the general election? I note that, of course, Trump did win back in 2016, Pennsylvania, but lost, obviously, in 2020. But the messaging in terms of what might appeal more broadly to voters, I mean, you're talking about some of the people who have run for election and right now who are deciding whether they're going to be the, the primary victor have run in part on these notions of the big lie. If that's the starting point of things, are we even to the point where policy considerations are going to be paramount? I think for Republicans, whoever wins the Senate race, really, I mean, I hate to like make my profession sound, you know, super rudimentary and, and non-complicated, but look, Joe Biden's in the mid-30s in virtually all these targeted Senate races. He is in really bad shape in Pennsylvania. Inflation's out of control. Gas is four something a gallon. People can't find baby formula. If you can't find a way to spin this straw into gold, I mean, I, I don't know, and God help you. I'm, I mean, this is not a complicated issue. Democrats are in control of everything. Joe Biden's at the top of the whole thing. And voters are really unhappy about all the stuff I just said. So really, that's what you should focus on. And that's why I have high hopes for this Senate race. I don't have high hopes for the governor's race because it doesn't seem to me like Mastriano wants to focus on those issues. He, he wants to focus on uh, you know, other issues that have nothing to do with being competent or likable, which you need to be a governor. But in the Senate race, I get the feeling Oz and McCormick, either of them, could, could focus on those core things and, and put Republicans uh, back in the Senate race here, which they need to do, by the way, uh, if they want to pick it up in the fall, pick up the whole well, chamber. What, well, why it's so important, though, if you think about this, Nina, and the idea of whoever's going to be the governor, for example, in this particular race, will be the one to set the secretary of state, who will be in charge of overseeing elections in the state of Pennsylvania, which, is, which obviously was a battleground state and continues to be so. When you think about where, where the party is right now, I mean— it's one thing to say, yes, you can spin the straw into gold, but one of the preventing vehicles for that has been what's happened in the Senate. The administration has not been able to accomplish all that it wants to because of the roadblocks in the Senate. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, you have uh, Republicans who are just doing what Republicans do, being recalcitrant, especially on issues that help to lift people. And then you got two Democrats who are front and center, uh, both Senators Manchin and cinema who are going totally in the opposite direction and have been the major roadblocks to President Biden's agenda. So it is vitally important that Democrats get some senators in that particular chamber who are going to stand up and fight for the agenda that the president 
is pushing. That is important. And then, Laura, another point to that, there are some other Democrats that's probably hiding behind Cinema and Mansion. We must get rid of the filibuster. Let's do that post-haste and then begin to work on the issues that will lift people in this country. It is time out for either party to play games with that. We can't get voting rights passed. Both parties should be in agreement, in agreement that it is important to have access, unfettered access to the ballot box, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which many, whether they're Republican or Democrat, talk about the relationship that they had with the late congressman, Ooh. how much they love and admire the late congressman. But yet and still, it's like pulling teeth to have people who are elected, who get elected for a living, stand in the way of advancing, expanding and protecting access yeah. to the ballot box. There should be no partisan argument about needing to ensure that people have that kind of access to the ballot box. The child tax well, credit, another example. It shouldn't matter you. whether you're Republican or Democrat, Laura. Do you want babies and, pe- and, and children from all families across this country to be pulled out of poverty? I don't get it. Or well, they Nina, I think the explanation, the explanation people would say would be their retort would be those things are not the priority to the Republican Party in the same way that it is the Democratic Party. And you point out the idea of the roadblocks being two Democrats in part. We'll continue the conversation. Nina Turner and Scott Jennings, thank you so much. I appreciate hearing from both of you. And now, frankly, to thank some you. very concerning new warnings from Homeland Security as we await the looming Supreme Court decision on abortion rights. Warnings of potential violence to come over the ruling. We'll look at what the Federal Bulletin details and get insight from a former Secret Service agent. That's coming up next. Tonight, the U.S. Marshal Service says it's working around the clock to provide around-the-clock security at the homes of all the U.S. Supreme Court justices. That word comes after today's stark warning from the Department of Homeland Security of potential violence once the court rules on abortion law. Of course, this comes after the leak of the draft opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. The threats range from burning down or storming the court to murdering justices and their clerks as well as members of Congress and lawful demonstrators. So how concerned should Americans be in a post-January 6th insurrection world? Let's get some perspective from CNN law enforcement analyst and former Secret Service agent, Jonathan Wackrow. Jonathan, I'm glad you're here, but I have to tell you, it gives people a great deal of pause when you think about the dire warning that's been issued, the idea of storming, the idea of murder, of the idea of pure violence happening. I, I wonder, what is your take on this memo? Were you surprised to see it? Well, listen, Laura, good evening. And one, no, I'm not surprised because DHS and, and law enforcement has learned from the past, and it's very prudent right now that uh, they are raising awareness and sharing information about potential violence uh, surrounding any type of, of uh, Supreme Court decision. And I just think that um, their focus on this highlights just how tense the conversation is nationally around abortion rights uh, and the just renewed intensity uh, in anticipation of this decision. And really, you highlighted some of those security risks, and they really stem predominantly from clashes that are anticipated between uh, pro-abortion and anti-abortion rights groups. And those clashes, you know, while of concern, 
there's also this this worst case scenario, which is uh, a fear that law enforcement is is now warning about around attacks from domestic violent extremist groups who we have seen in the past have capitalized on you know these you know polarizing uh, social issues in the past. You know, it's one thing to talk about the anticipation, but anticipation is only as good as if you have the resources and the ways to actually try to prevent and deter it. Do you think that they are flat-footed in their ability to do so, or will they be able to be nimble enough should this actually arise? Uh, Laura, great question, right? Because we've seen law enforcement be flat-footed in the past, right? January 6th was a, was a great example. But and not, right f- now, not from their own reason, by the way. We talk about flat-footed, not by their own you know, lack of ability or lack of desire to help and provide the service, but I mean resource-wise, flat-footed, um, intelligence-wise in terms of the information, flat-footed. Well, no, actually, it, w- what we're seeing is is actually a very robust intelligence uh, uh, process being put into place to look at all sides of these issues. Law mm-hmm. enforcement must consider the primary, second, and third order of consequences of any decision that's handed down by the court, right? Any decision, you're going to have a winner and a losing side, right? And you're going to have anxiety and tension between those two groups. Law enforcement knows that, and they're looking at key groups on both sides of this issue to understand who the primary actors are, what type of action may uh, may exist should a decision go either way, and they're planning accordingly. The federal law enforcement, uh, DHS, is working with local law enforcement partners around the country to get ahead of this issue. This is unprecedented. I have never seen this before where uh, we're, we're seeing a whole-of-government approach to one singular court action. And I think that uh, you know it just speaks to the, the seriousness of this issue and how we need to move forward to prepare. And when we do see the idea of maybe not a whole-of-government approach, when you've got individual jurisdictions, say there is a verdict that's about to be rendered by a jury, you've got that heads-up that maybe goes out to the law enforcement locally to try to anticipate. You've had complaints, obviously, across the country about the shutting down of areas and what that would mean, the reading of the tea leaves. Here, do you think there's going to be a coordination with the Supreme Court of the United States to suggest, hey, this is going to be coming on this particular day to take and plan accordingly? Or will it really have to be as responsive as when the media learns about it, when the American people learn about whatever final ruling there will be? Well, listen, there's there's three parts to this. It's preparation, response, and recovery. That's what law enforcement is thinking about. It would be great if they got a heads up that there is some decision coming so they can uh, basically put out uh, the, the right resources at the right time. However, the, the fact that we are sitting here tonight talking about this, raising awareness, and law enforcement agencies are not only working with each other, but they're also working with the private sector, corporations and businesses, both large and small around the country, to help them prepare for the potential impact of this decision. So the preparation of the left of boom planning really is key in bringing that agility that you just talked about, bringing the resilience structure into place so that we can act quickly and maintain civil order as best as possible. Jonathan, you know, the elephant in the room is the fact that we are talking about this in anticipation of a potential violent response. And we know we are a country that honors and values the First Amendment, but the idea of the expectation of free speech and reaction and assembly um, turning violent is something that I think we can't get used to in this society. I know you know that quite well, Mm -hmm. and we'll see what actually comes of it. Jonathan Wackrow, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate it. You know, the government is not warning people to avoid going to the supermarket or to church. 
But deadly racism like the massacre in Buffalo is cause for fear, and it isn't exactly a one-off. Michael Eric Dyson joins me. I want to know, does he see a through line between the language of the us's and the them's and the latest innocent people to die merely because of who they are? That's next. In the wake of the Buffalo mass shooting, America once again finds itself engaged in conversations about racism and white supremacy. In particular, in this case, the white replacement conspiracy theory. It's the latest in a string of recent hate-motivated massacres, including El Paso, Pittsburgh, and Charleston. The question is, why does this keep happening? And are we having the right conversations about hate to stop it? Professor of African-American and Diaspora Studies at Vanderbilt University and author of Unequal, A Story of America, Michael Eric Dyson joins me now. Michael, I'm so glad you're here to talk about this and give the perspective, but this is a conversation that is infuriating by how cyclical it really is. The idea of the evergreen nature of the conversation about the replacement theory, it has its place in history but also in the present. Walk us through a little bit about what this says about the state of race in America. Well, Laura, it's always great to be on with you. Yeah, this is not anything new. In fact, what's interesting is that the white replacement theory comports effortlessly with Confederate theories of white supremacy and white superiority, with post-Reconstruction denial of opportunity to black people, with violent reprisals against black people for the unabashed temerity to have progress, the fact that you think you can vote. They were going to schools and burning them down. They were going to polling places and threatening black people. This was a hundred and some odd years ago and it continues today. So as, as, as odd and as exceptional as the white replacement theory looks, there's a newfangled twist to it here, the explicit expression that we are fearful of genetically disappearing, uh, right? We know that in what, 20 some odd years, white people will no longer be the statistical majority in this country. And when you tie it all together, white replacement theory, anti-CRT argument, uh, the the insistence that abortion uh, be banned and that white babies in particular be born, this is all of a larger piece. And that larger piece is the fear of whiteness disappearing in the face of a worldwide global expansion of people of color. And right here in this nation, We will not be replaced by Jews, by Blacks, by Latinos and others. That's part of the tragedy that has to constantly be dealt with and seen as a through line from white supremacy beginning before 1619 on down to today. You know, the way you talk about it was really under that discussion of has often talked about the browning of America. There's conversations around the census data and who to include, who's entitled to be thought of as an American. Even recently, you had members of Congress who were tweeting the idea of the audacity of the government to provide formula to undocumented newborns and give it instead to rightful American babies. This whole through line is really there. But, you know, what often has the conversation, and I know you know this well, what often follows is this is not who we are. This is not America. You had the president of the United States as a candidate saying, I'm running to spite for the soul of this nation. But is there a fallacy in the idea that this isn't who we are? There is a, a tremendous fallacious assumption that this is not who we are. One president fighting for the soul of America, another president fighting solely for white America more broadly. 
Uh, we saw this in 45 under his presidency. We saw the res resurgence and recrudescence of white supremacist thinking, of the unashamed expression, unapologetic embrace of white supremacy. And guess what? Autocracy, authoritarianism, neo-fascism comes along. The greatest predictor for fascism in America is white supremacy. What is it when black people are written out of their the history and narrative? This, this angst about CRT, we know this is really blown up. Two years ago, people didn't even know what CRT meant, but we're looking at the wrong RT. CRT, critical race theory, versus white uh, WRT, white replacement theory. And the, and the truth is that in this country, deeply entrenched in the bowels of this, of this nation is the belief that whiteness is rightness. And so the American Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Federalist Papers, even though they are not explicitly in many cases embracing this white supremacist ideology, they are built upon it and rest upon its premises. And as a result of that, what we see going on now is the long historical trajectory of anti-blackness, of anything that doesn't represent whiteness in its pristine, pure form. So yeah, we got to talk about the ways in which Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and Scalise and others represent a spectrum and continuum of beliefs that are hospitable to uh, and incubating of the kind of deep and profound explicit violence that we see manifest. I'm not saying they're the same thing. I'm saying they are on a continuum where they begin to tolerate the forms of bigotry and hatred. Mitch McConnell said black people vote like Americans do not other Americans, already there's an othering, there's an, a distancing from black people as humane agents of our destiny as citizens in this country. It's all of a piece and it's very ugly for America to confront it. We'd rather think, oh, it's a bunch of guys in white sheets or nice haircuts who are talking about, we will not be replaced, we will not be removed. No, it's deeply entrenched in the very bowels of American society. This is who we are. So how do we go from this being perhaps who we are to who we should not be and who we ought to be? I mean, it's one thing to have the esoteric conversations that we all need to have to better understand the lay of the land, the history, the context. But how do you go from that to where we should be and not for some would look at this and say, OK, well, you're offending the First Amendment. I get to say what I want and feel how I want to feel just because I don't happen to abide by your principles doesn't mean that I don't have any right to say it and you got to legislate against me. How do you bridge that gap? Well, look, uh, the great historian Steve Lynn Morris, better known as Stevie Wonder, said first man to die for the flag we now hold high was a black man, Crispus Attucks. So here he was, a formerly enslaved black man, was the first to die for the freedom of America. Don't be trying to lecture black people about loyalty to this nation. We were loyal to this nation when this nation refused to feed us, treated us like chattel slavery, denounced us, dehumanized us, otherized us, and yet we stood tall. America has been at its best when its ideals have been articulated but lived out within the fleshly, concrete context of African-American struggle. Only when black and brown and red and yellow and peoples of color come along to embody the ideals that America put forth brilliantly, but contradicted paradoxically. Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson writing about the Declaration of Independence, but then owning human beings. So when black and brown and other peoples come along, it is in our redemptive practice that America is transformed from an ideal to a reality. Martin Luther King Jr. the night before he died said, America, mm -hmm. all we ask is be true to what you said on paper. That's what it will take. 
Michael Eric Dyson, the only person who can talk about Stevie Wonder to recrescendant, to talk about Thomas Jefferson and make me want to scald the next Wordle clue. I appreciate you always. I'm so glad to have you on the show. And I loved your book. Thank you so much. Thank you so kindly. Look, the former officer who held down George Floyd's legs in his final nine moments, he pleaded guilty today to second-degree manslaughter. If you forgot the specifics in the two years since George Floyd was killed, Lane was only days into his job. And he's the one, recall, who asked Derek Chauvin if Floyd should be moved out of that prone position. But he never did actually get off the man as he lay in the street dying. The state's attorney general says this plea is proof Lane, quote, accepted responsibility for his role in Floyd's death. Lane's defense attorney says this is about the chance for a two-year sentence versus a possible mandatory 12 if convicted. Now, you can decide for yourself if this plea is a step towards greater justice. We'll turn next to the nation's formula shortage. So bad now that some children need to be hospitalized. The doctor who leads a key committee at the American Academy of Pediatrics is seeing the extremes of this emergency. And he'll share it with us. And we'll look at the newest guidance for parents when CNN Tonight returns. Breaking news tonight in the formula shortage crisis, the House just passed the first of two bills that could total $28 million in emergency funding to try and help feed hungry babies. Now, the fate of the funding is unclear in the Senate, but this on the same night the president is invoking the Defense Production Act. This national crisis leaving already exhausted parents of newborns who are now facing an all-now-consuming reality, the panicked hunt for baby formula. When I get to work in the morning, I look for formula. When we're finally sitting on the couch for an hour at night, we're looking for formula. The worst case is becoming a reality, because in Memphis, a lack of formula put two children in the hospital. Dr. Mark Corkins treated the kids at Le Bonheur Children's Hospital. He's also the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Nutrition. Dr. Corkins, I'm glad you're here, but please tell us, how are the children doing? They're doing very well. Um, actually, one of them did be, um, uh, was able to go home. Uh, one is still there, and we're hoping to be able to send him home soon. You know, when we hear about this, this is really the fear of parents, that if there is not the ability to provide sustenance and nutrition, you're not going to be able to maintain a, a thriving child very long. You've seen two and treated two patients. It's hard to imagine that you won't expect more. It is. It's a worry that with this this shortage, that um, uh, until there's more production, um, that uh, we're going to continue to have needs uh, until the factory that it, uh, was uh, shut down is back up and operating. Uh, there's not as much production from all the different companies that make formula uh, to make up the difference. So what are you telling parents? I mean, I can only imagine what that conversation was like and the fear of a parent bringing their child, knowing that they cannot feed their, their baby, they cannot provide, and they're looking for alternatives. And I know as a mom, you know, we were always really trained, only certain stages you introduce certain types of food. Now, there's a discussion now about whole milk, possibly. Is that changing now in terms of being able to use that for children? I was always told, no, that's not what you use. No, it's not what you use, uh, not before you're of age. Um, 
especially not before six months of age. Uh, six months, the first six months, literally, you're totally dependent on either breast milk or formula for your intake. It's got to supply all of your nutrients. Now, when you have some solids in your diet, a little bit of, you know, for instance, if you can't find formula for a day or two, whole milk is probably, you know, it's a stopgap measure. It's far from ideal, but it's not really recommended until you're a year of age. But as a stopgap measure, I mean, if the choice for parents who are literally between a rock and a hard place, the idea of it's either feed my child nothing or potentially this stopgap measure, is it a real concern health-wise, obviously for a sustained period of time, but what are you telling parents in terms of what they're supposed to do well, when you're treating them? The, yeah, and then there's also there's some, some next-step toddler formulas, for instance. Those are not as complete. They're not designed for infants. But again, as a stopgap measure, while you're looking for formula, a day or two of those is all is also an alternative you can use. Um, there are lots of groups and lots of people who have created ways to find the formulas. There are formulas available, but you have to look pretty hard to find them. And of course, have the means to do so, which is an overarching concern for so many reasons, for good reason. You know. Can, if this were to go on for a longer period of time, we know with even the Defense Production Act and the idea of reopening the, a factory, that these may still be prolonged solutions that will take a long time. How long can this go on and, and not jeopardize the health of these children? Well, that's a good question. How long, how much supply do we have left? I don't know that anybody really knows the answer to how much is left. The FDA has made some um, moves. They're actually working to approve some um, formulas from overseas um, to, to help bridge the gap and bring in some supplies that we don't normally see in the U.S. Those uh, formulas, of course, they have to make sure they're complete and they're mm -hmm. safe. Uh, and that's under their legal purview um, to make sure that the formulas are safe that are fed to our infants. And we highly regulate that for that reason, for nutritional value. Thank you, Dr. Corkins, for what you're doing. I hope that I know that one child went home. I hope the other one is able to as well, and it doesn't become a revolving door of other children in need of help. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, there's a lot going on for a variety of reasons. So perhaps it's no wonder that the first congressional hearing, there it is, on maybe UFOs in half a century has only been, well, a blip on the news radar. But we're about to dive into those truly extraordinary few hours examining the possibility of extraterrestrial life here on Earth. So what does our guest make of it? He's about to take apart some of those videos of UFO sightings shown there. And if they're not some kind of alien spacecrafts, well, what are they? Next. Unidentified aerial phenomena are a potential national security threat, and they need to be treated that way. For too long, the stigma associated with UAPs has gotten in the way of good intelligence analysis. Pilots avoided reporting or were laughed at when they did. Today, we know better. UAPs are unexplained, it's true, but they are real. I can't lie, I'm into this. Those grave words kicked off today's congressional hearing on UFOs. It's the first of its kind in more than 50 years. Top Pentagon officials testified under oath about what they know, about those unidentified aerial phenomena, or as you heard him say, UAPs, including this one, a video of flashing triangle shapes as seen through night vision goggles. 
Now, for several years, the mystery sightings and others like it have gone unresolved until now. The triangular appearance is a result of light passing through the night vision goggles and then being recorded by an SLR camera. Well, you know who else had a similar explanation that was grounded in facts months before Pentagon officials went on the record? Mick West, science writer and UFO investigator, who joins me now. Mick, this is really an interesting conversation, what we're seeing here. And I just have to ask you, I mean, they were trying to offer certain explanations today at the hearing. But there were some that were still puzzled by these explanations. Can we walk through these videos so we can get an idea of what's going on? Because I want to know what you see when you see these videos Beginning with the triangle one, we saw the triangles of this sort of flashing green triangle through the sky. What are you seeing or explaining about what you think is happening here? Sure. Uh, Now, this video is one that I actually came up with the explanation for over a year ago. And I think it's very interesting that uh, uh, the UAP task force uh, spent, they said, several years looking at this video, trying to figure out what it was. Uh, And we just see basically triangles moving through the sky, one triangle in particular, uh, that is flashing. And the first thing you notice is it's flashing at about the same rate as a commercial airliner. Mm-hmm. And so I, I figured that might be the explanation. And I looked into the technology that's being used, the cameras that are being used. It's a night vision monocular. And some night vision binoculars have an aperture inside the lens. Uh, like this lens, for example, if I hold this up to the camera, you can see that inside of the lens, the aperture is a triangle shape. And if you view something like a small light through a lens that has a triangular aperture, like some of these night vision binoculars, then it will look triangular shape. And then I also looked at what's going on in the rest of the scene. And I found out you could actually identify individual stars in this scene. And you could uh, figure out where it actually was. And you could see that these stars themselves were also triangular shape, which proved that it was just a camera artifact. So I'm a little bamboozled as to why the, uh, the UAP investigators and the government uh, were unable to figure this out for about two years. Well, welcome to a slow bureaucracy, perhaps, and how the government works on these issues, Mick. But there's also one called the about the flyby as well. And I'm wondering what you see and could explain to us what you're seeing there of this particular video that seems to show an object flying by this frame. Yeah, that's an even uh, lower information video, I'm afraid. Now, this video, you can't really see from the, the one they showed in the hearings, but it's actually out of focus. It's actually a video that was taken with an iPhone, and you can identify the iPhone by the quality of the out of focus light, the white light that's shown there. And we see something that only zips by the screen for uh, less than you know, a tenth of a second. It's literally three frames of the video. And uh, it's essentially moving in the, exactly the opposite direction of the plane, which means that, uh, as uh, Scott Bray said in the hearing, it's probably moving very slow. He also said it was reflective, and we can see that from the white highlight on it. So mm. the most likely explanation for this is that it's a mylar balloon that the plane is simply flying by, and it's not actually moving itself, and it's not actually anything particularly interesting. It's just a bit of airborne clutter. Well, I have to say, I'm disappointed on both counts, if that's really the explanation of things. Because a part of me does want there to be some explanation that leads us to this notion of life in the universe. Maybe because I'm a Star Trek fan, I just don't know. But I wonder what the significance of the hearing really is here. Because um, what what is the real point of having this? And particularly now, I mean, those are not the only things they looked at, of course. And there could be classified sure. components of any hearing. So we may not be seeing everything. 
But I wonder, what can you explain, what is the reason for these hearings now? Has there been a culmination of a lot of different sightings, so to speak, and this is but one example, and that people are trying to understand the phenomena that's not just an anomaly? Well, I think historically there have always been UFOs since we've had people flying and those things have always been with us and they've always been interesting. We've always wanted to try to figure out what they are. Uh, but more recently, we've had new technology like drones, which present new challenges in identifying things in, in our airspace. Uh, and this is something that is a real issue, is a significant issue, and there could be problems with, say, the Chinese or the Russians spying on us in, or even attacking us using drones. So we really need to be able to identify drones. So it's a real thing that they need to look into. But this is all being conflated by people who are lobbying uh, essentially because they believe in aliens. They believe that there is some kind of non-human intelligence flying around up in the sky, and they think that the government needs to tell us about it. And mm -hmm. a lot of what we've seen recently is a combination of these very real issues, these very real security threats, uh, sure. mixed up with this kind of strange alien uh, mythology. Well, that's, an, that's a, an interesting notion, the idea of framing it with a national security conversation in particular. Nick West, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for watching. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now with Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.